Hello and welcome to the Scottish Clans. I'm Clint. Thank you for joining me today. I'm excited about so many things coming up. I can't wait to share them with you. I'm going to save the the biggest thing for right this second that I'm excited about to share with you right before I actually share it with you. So the first thing I want to tell you about is an upcoming event that I'm actually going to be speaking at. That's not why I'm the most excited about it, but I am really excited to get together with other people who are passionate about their Scottish heritage. It's going to be, the, the name of the event is called the Clan Conclave Dinner. It's hosted by the Clan Campbell representatives here in the Intermountain West. Uh, my personal contact is Adam Campbell, and there's uh, Tom Campbell is also, I believe, involved in this. And if you've gone into to any of the Scottish festivals or Highland Games in the Intermountain West here, you've probably bumped into one or the other of those two gentlemen. Um, and I actually published an uh, interview that I actually did with Tom several uh, several episodes ago. Anyway, and it was right as he was closing down his tent and getting ready to pack it up and go away, but he paused and took a few minutes to to visit with me. So I appreciate that, and I appreciate Adam's involvement here. The details of this event is that it's going to be on September 16th from 6 to 8 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. The location is the Evermore Great Hall at 382 South Evermore Lane in Pleasant Grove, Utah. I will have all those details in a link in the comments in the below. So whatever pl- platform you're listening to this on, there'll be a link associated to just find out where the comments and the introduction to the podcast episode are, and then it'll be the link will be down in there. But I did tell you last time that I was in my last uh, episodes that I recorded this the whole Bannockburn series and did these clans fight at Bannockburn that I had some things coming up. But I give you more details. Where well, there's your more details. If you click that link, if you're anywhere within traveling distance of the Wasatch Front of Utah, then feel free to go to that link and do a little RSVP. They'll have a a link there that you can go to to say, hey, I'm coming and order enough food for me. There's a price per head for it. But I think it's going to be cool. And it's not just for, even though it's hosted by Campbell's, it's not just for Campbell's. And if you're thinking, well, I don't want to go to it because it's the Campbell's, then you're wrong. Fix yourself because this is not the 1640s West Highlands or Isles of Scotland. Yeah, don't miss out on an awesome event just because of that craziness. And I wouldn't even say that had I not seen some of the craziness on Facebook. People like still wound around the axle about Campbell stuff from the 1600s. All right. So the uh, other thing I'm really excited about is I got my new tartan ties from USA Kilts. I've got a Buchanan tie and a McDougall tie. Now I have to go a little bit farther back in time up my family tree to get the McDougal tie, uh, but it still is before I leave the United States. It's just, but it's before, well before we emigrated the mid 1800s out here to the Rocky Mountains. But I found some McDougals back in there, so I thought, what the heck? Not that you have to have the ancestry to get the tartan product, but I think it's cool to have that connection. And the other one's Buchanan's, and I've mentioned on here before. I have some McCormick ancestors, but they lived in Fife. McCormick's not a Fife name. And so what are the two most likely candidates it ties back to? One's McLean of Loch Bui and the other's Buchanan's. Well, I already had the McLean tie, so I figured I'd cover all my bases and get the Buchanan. Plus, the Buchanan tartan is very unique tartan. And so I'm excited. I'm excited to wear them. I can't wait to the next thing I wear a tie to, and I can sport my McDougal or my Buchanan tie. I haven't figured out which one I'm going to do first, but I got them from usakilts.com. The quality of their products, specifically their, their kilts, they, they make them right there in their shop in Pennsylvania. They're super passionate about what they do. Their customer service is awesome. Free shipping in, inside the U.S. Um, 
And they have an awesome YouTube channel. The channel is called USA Kilts and Celtic Traditions. So go there, check them out. It's going to be awesome. The, uh, the, uh, I think I've, I just had a great experience with them. So go ahead and check them out at usakilts.com or at their YouTube channel. All right. The other thing that I wanted to talk to you, to you about is, hey, if you like what we're doing here with the channel, Feel free to contribute by going to scottish-clans.com forward slash team. I have a link in there that you can donate the cost of a drink or if you want to level up to a book, something like that, everything. It's not that much, just a, you know, a few dollars, but every as it, as it accumulates, it counts. It counts a lot, and I take a lot of time and pride in trying to share these things with you. So if you want to give back, that's where you can go, scottish-clans.com forward slash team. And if you want to check out my new online course on the origins of the Scottish clans, go to scottish-clans.com forward slash origin. All right, now the biggest thing that I am excited about is the interview that I had with Allie Cathcart. She so kindly agreed to donate some of her time and sat down with me for about an hour. I'm going to break it into two different episodes and let you hear our discussion that we had. I based most of my questions out of things that I've read that, from her works, and she just had some really cool things to share back uh, relevant to a lot of the discussions that are ongoing within this podcast and its accompanying Facebook group. So I think it's going to be really educational for you. The first part of it is some introductory stuff on her, just so you know where she's coming from. And, and then we get into a really cool discussion on the Scottish clans. We talk a little bit about the Highland line, you know, what, you know, one side of the line in the lowlands versus the other side in the highlands. We talk about some specific clans like the Gordons of Huntley, the Macintoshes, the Grants, a few others. We talk a little bit about... Um, just the different ways we look at clans. I'm really excited to share this with you. I hope you like it. So go ahead and give it a listen. Uh, I'm going to turn you over now to my conversation with Professor Ali Cathcart. Well, ladies and gentlemen, today we have a special treat with us. We have Ali Cathcart with us from the University of Sterling, and she's agreed to come on here and teach us about Scottish clans. She has written a lot about things that if you're listening to this podcast, especially if you've been listening to this podcast, for a while now, you are specifically interested in the Scottish clan. She's written so much that has helped me understand this concept better. And we were just, before we pressed the record button, that just discussing how some of our own views on this have changed over the years. So she will get to teach us what her most current and most recent learning is and, uh, and help us understand the subject better. So Ali, thank you so much for, for coming on and spending this time with us. I'm looking forward to Great. Okay. So just by way of introduction, can you, do you mind telling my audience a little bit about just where you're from, maybe how you got interested in the subject and why you decided to go into this as a profession, learning about this? Oh, that's a lot. Yeah. So I grew up in, in Derry City in the north of Ireland. Um, and I started off my undergraduate degree in Trinity in Dublin. Um, and if I just they had an Erasmus scheme then, which allows you to go and study abroad. So I ended up going to Scotland. It's not abroad, but languages wasn't my strong point back then. So I, I went to Scotland to Aberdeen for a year um, and stayed. 
and that's when I first encountered Scottish history. And so my interests have moved. I do now as much Irish history as I do Scottish history, really. But but as an undergraduate, I just had never encountered Scottish history before. And I got so fascinated um, and fascinated by, by the clans. So that's when I, I moved over to Scotland, really, was during my undergraduate. And I've been here ever since. And um, I don't think I ever made a conscious decision that this is, you know, I, I never grew up thinking I want to be a, a university lecturer. I want to do this for life. Um, and, you know, I'm fortunate enough. I mean, I, I honestly, every day I'm grateful that I get to do this as a job. I, I really am. You know, where else do you, you know, you get paid to read books and talk about something that you're really passionate about. Um, and I'm really lucky because I think today you have to be much more strategic. You have to be much more organized in, in your career planning. Whereas I just thought, yeah, and I got funding to do a PhD, which was brilliant and, and wonderful. And I was really lucky. And, and I just ended up doing this. I thought, yeah, okay, I'll give it a go. I don't think you can do that anymore. Um, so I ended up, yeah. Um, and now I'm, yeah, I get paid to teach and, and write and research. And every so often you get a, an entire semester off to, to go and do archival research and write about it. I mean, yeah. I'm I'm really fortunate. So in that sense, I don't know if I ever made that conscious decision, but um, it's been wonderful. The whole, all of it, all the ups and downs. But it's been fascinating to build a career out of studying and, and teaching about Scottish history. Well, I just speaking for myself, just off of what I've been able to learn from your writings, I'm grateful that that worked out for you. <laughs> and I think there's probably a lot of people listening to this that think, "Wow, would that be cool?" Just to to study and and uh, and write what you learn and have the chance to get up in front of audiences and share that things. I that, that that to me sounds like a great time. So I'm glad that's worked out well. It is. I mean, and, and I'm not somebody who I'm. I'm a complete introvert. I'm. I don't love standing up in front of people. Uh, you know, I, I hate the center of attention. But there's something about being able to share your research and and I love the questions at the end when you're giving a lecture or a talk because um, you always get something that makes you think and you go oh yeah I've, I've not thought about it like that before and that's what I love about it so you're caught you, you never get to stand still I think in this job which is which is what's beautiful about it you're always being pushed or challenged to do something else or think in a different way which is great yeah no, I agree I've, I've spent most of my professional life as a teacher younger ages I've, I've done a, I've taught high um, college age university age a, a little bit but uh, mostly it was high school age but it is I, I everything you just said i have have experienced over and over again just I, I am an introvert all my my recharging is done by myself usually in some big lonesome country but uh but that opportunity to get with people and share them things you're passionate share them things you're passionate about and get feedback and questions that push your own understanding i completely agree with everything you said um well let's uh professionally though um can you tell us a little bit about so you're like I mentioned you're any you're at University of Strathclyde. I think that was it was when you were there that I first learned about you and I started reading your your writings but since then you've shifted over to University of Stirling. Yeah. So I I did my PhD at Aberdeen. I had a few years at St Andrews all on the east coast of Scotland and uh, Scotland's not very big, you know, in comparison to to the, the kind of scale that you're used to across the water um but the east coast is very dry um and colder 
and the west coast is quite wet and warmer so I'd spent all these years in Aberdeen and St Andrews and then moved to Strathclyde in Glasgow and it was just like being back in Derry it was just wet constantly it was like oh my goodness um but it was it was great I mean being in the west is lovely <clears throat> you're closer to the west coast which is the east coast is beautiful um I'm a fan of the west coast as well and so I was there for 14 15 years and then uh, just four years ago I moved to Stirling which is really right in the heart of Scotland um it's beautiful it's a, it's a campus university uh, there's a loch in the middle of it there's hills nearby it's it's really beautiful um and it's a great place to work I, I was thrilled to move there because they have a really strong environmental history dimension um and I do some interdisciplinary work with fisheries so they have biological environmental sciences they have aquaculture so um yeah it's a, it's a wonderful place I'm, I'm really lucky to be working at Stirling it's a great university I just love it that's really cool. Yeah, that connection to the natural world is is, is a, a great, I think, an important grounding part of our lives. So great. Think, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to, Stirling is so rich in history. You know, you have the Battle of Stirling Bridge, you have Bannockburn, <clears> you have the Walls, you have Stirling Castle. You, you know, it's it's um, it's it's a really rich place in terms of just history as well. So. Well, you talked about the contrast between there and here, like as, as far as size. Yeah, yeah, I'm Where I live right now is, is vast. You can drive a long ways without encountering any people <laughs> but but uh that's another dis different difference that you mentioned is everything out here as far as you know people have been out here for a long time before the european descended people showed up but but they there's not much permanent that they left behind just their way of life didn't didn't provide much as far as like ruins and and it, oh, like on this spot this happened and man it, you, it'd be hard to turn around in where you're at without bumping into some major historical landmark that something really important that happened there yeah there's battlefields all around us really in Sterling. oh my so goodness Bridge and Sheffmere, there's a lot yeah that's cool cool well um ali let's i'm gonna swipe my screen over and take a look at some of the things that we prepared to talk about today um, ladies and gentlemen, I'd sent Allie over some questions based on some things of, that she's read about, and we'll use that as kind of the foundation of what we want to talk about, and we'll go from there. Um, it, any other place that she'd like to talk, or um, if you see, if you're watching the video of this, and I move my hand all over the place, there is a very, very persistent fly. Never mind, there's not anymore. Sorry for all the people who just freaked out, but um, <laughs> drive me crazy. So. Uh, so we're gonna the first thing that we'd like to start off with with Ali is a question that she wrote Ali you wrote a, an article called crisis of identity and it's funny because the question that I have for you isn't even out of the main article it was a footnote that you had included in there and but but I thought it was fascinating I actually used this footnote in my master's thesis the one, one thing that we encounter a lot I encounter a lot of this, like I've had so many conversations about this where so people want to draw a line and say on this side of the line, this is how it was on that side of the line. That's how it was. When uh, I think one of the most major examples of this is whether you had clans or not. And on this side, it was here. They had clans on that side over there. They didn't have clans and something that you'd you'd put in there. And this is the the quote was you're talking about i believe it was in context of the, the battle of harla if i remember correctly um, i didn't put that in, include that in there uh, but you were referring to because you have this 
the reason I think it was that is because you had this force that was gathered from the Aberdeenshire area and this other force that was coming mostly from the Highlands and Isles. And they're, they're coming to a gigantic head and there's a big, huge battle. And the, I mean, whether that was a context or not, the thing that you said was, they're talking about this Aberdeenshire area, said where, where Gaelic and Scots were both spoken and cultural differences were minimal. Um, that, doesn't, that doesn't connect well with people's desire to put everything in tidy little boxes historically. Can you speak about maybe this blurred line where it looks like a very mixed cultural environment that you're providing there for us? Um, yeah, so I spend a lot of time with my students talking about, just going back to what you said about everybody wants to put a nice line on stuff. Um, and I think as historians, we, we want to make sense of the past. So we create, and I'll come back to this in another question, which, you know, we create nice theories or ideas to make sense of how the past operated so feudalism this is a nice way of understanding how land was organized and dished out and I think it's much more messy I don't think it's any more complicated but it's messy the past is messy it is and drawing lines as we know on maps is the most unhelpful thing you can do um, or drawing lines on a map that actually then represents something on the ground is the most unhelpful thing you can do because it is messy. And so I, yeah, that if I'm talking about the Battle of Harlow, that it is about Aberdeenshire and Aberdeenshire is one of those areas that straddles what we call that Highland Lowland, I call it boundary. And um, people talk about the Highland Lowland line as if there is this line that is <laughs> drawn across Scotland. And I find it really unhelpful. I, and I remember writing Kinship and Clientage and at one point was trying to think of different words that instead of Highland and Lowland, because when we think of Highlands, we, we immediately conjure up something in our head and we think of Lowlands, we immediately conjure up something in our head and that those two are very much opposed to each other. And that's the most unhelpful way of looking at it. Um, note that if you go to the West, Western Highlands and Isles, um, that Highland region, yeah, you have a very maritime community there. The, the richness of the culture is there with in terms of gravestones, in terms of material culture, in terms of language. Um, if you went to Lothians, you'd experience something very different, very lowland. But in that Aberdeenshire, Grampian, Highland, Perthshire region, that's the region I was looking at in, in Kinship and Clientage, what I call the Eastern Highlands, that boundary area that straddles Highlands and Lowlands. And so you have, so I looked at the Macintoshes and Clan Hatton and the Clan Grant, two very different clans, Clan Grant, different origin theories, but lightly descended from Anglo-Normans who may or may not have spoken Gaelic or certainly when they first arrived in Scotland did not speak Gaelic and in this area you know lived up against side the Macintoshes and Clan Hatton who had a very different origin very much spoke Gaelic um, and so were of that world but also their their superior their landlord their lord Gordons of Huntley um and this is where it gets complicated. They are a lowland family, okay? An absolutely lowland family. They would have been horrified if you'd ever described them as, as a Gallic clan. And yet, when we get into the 18th century, because of the Gordon Highlanders, you get some people talking about them as a clan. They're not a clan. They, they'd have hated any sense that you described them as a clan. They were a very Catholic family, very, um, very proud of their, of their 
power, their influence around Aberdeenshire. Um, I was up in Huntley recently and, and back at Huntley Castle that I haven't been to for years. And it's a phenomenal structure. Um, the architecture, heraldic design, all of that. If you'd ever described them as a Gallic clan, they really would have been quite upset with you. And yet their tenants are, some of them are Gales. And so th there's that mixing of, of cultures so that they're... they're would the Ga Gordons of Huntley have spoken Gaelic? Possibly. Hmm. But the tenants would have spoken both Gaelic and English. They would have written in English or Scots, but they would have spoken Gaelic. So it's that sense of, you know, this is a world where you're straddling two cultures, two communities. Um, and to so to say, here's where the Gales lived or here's where the non-Gales lived is, is very problematic. There was a lot of mixing over that, that Highland Lowland boundary. I think that's really what I'm getting at. So, and the Battle of Harlow, I think, is where you get a sense of, okay, you have the Crown forces. A lot of them would have been drawn from Highland families because of where Harlow was fought. And you have them going against MacDonald of the Isles, who would have had, yeah, Gales and non-Gales. It's the same as, as, you know, Culloden. You know, you had Scots fighting on both sides of the army, or, of the battle, you know. Um, it's not as straight cut, straightforward as... Here's the crown versus the the Gallic forces. It was never always that easy and simple. Do you think partly it's the historiography? Because sometimes it is like very straightforward with the Battle of Harlaw. They they present it as the the Teuton versus the the Celt. In in later terms, when they saw everything in these, and they would use very racial descriptions of these two, and and this group of people are like this, and this group of people are like this, and yeah, like especially with the Battle of Culloden, that's. I don't think we appreciate sometimes the Highland element that was part of that, the, gov the government forces on that one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's the historiography, and I think it's also a result of, I, I think, how history is written since Culloden. I think Jacobitism, because it was a very real fear and a very real threat to the security of the Hanover Hanoverian regime and indeed the British state for a long time, that categorization that description of of highlanders as uncivil i mean that's been there since john forden it's been there for for centuries that highlanders are not civil they're uncouth they're barbaric they're lawless that has become entrenched and and over the 18th 19th and into the early 20th century it was written in that way to, to sort of well this is how the past was without really unpicking it um, and you see that in other cultures you know very easily some certain certain different um Many of these people's races are, are described in a certain way because that's how they always were without really looking at, at it objectively and trying to unpack the layers and layers of bias and prejudice and historiography that are, that are put on top of that. Um, and because, so we look at, high, at Culloden as the defeat of, of Gallic society almost, um, and there's a real, you know, concentrated expression of, Gallic culture after Culloden, we look at it as well. It failed, you know, um, and, and we write it backwards. I, I think sometimes that's a problem with history, is because, and something I'm really clear in, in in when I'm writing that I'm not, I don't fall into this trap, is because we know the end result, we then write the past because we lead up to that because we know that clan society essentially, although it wasn't that, was defeated at Culloden, and it wasn't that simple. We write the past as if Jacobinism was always doomed to fail, as if clan society was always doomed to fail, and, yeah. and that's not how it was. 
Um, and so, yeah, that, that, that is written back into the 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th century that, that clan society was always defeated by the crown. And it wasn't. And I spend a lot of time, my focus is really 16th, early 17th century. Um, and I'm really on picking the reign of James VI and I at the minute. And the narrative is that, you know, he gains the upper hand over the Highlanders. He's able to defeat them. He's able to pacify the region. And when you look, when you unpick it, you kind of go, yeah, okay, but it's after he has failed so many times. You know, he tries all these policies and none of them work. And um, and this expedition that he takes to the Isles in 1608, and, and everybody says, you know, this was a successful expedition that led to the Statutes of Iona, no negotiated agreement. But, but yeah, but in the face of, you know, poor planning, poor execution, poor resources, all of that, he manages to, to do that. Um, you know, so it's sometimes how we write these general broad narratives, these overarching narratives, and that's not really helpful because when you drill down into it, I sort of think, yeah, I, I don't think that's how it was really. Yeah, thank you for for diving into that. There's a, several things you said in there I thought were, were really interesting. Going back to your use of the Gordons as an example, it's interesting because it, when I first started this whole thing, because today everything is presented as a clan. You go on Wikipedia and you dial in clan and then just insert a Scottish last name and they've got a Wikipedia article on that group as a clan. And when I was writing my master's, master's thesis, which is when I first reached out to you, I couldn't, I couldn't find a lot of sources. And part of it is I just didn't know how to dig well enough because I was doing it all online. So I didn't have a nice big university with chuck full of books that I could go read. And that was I, as I read a lot of these, you know, for starters, just to get a, the foundation, of these Wikipedia articles. And I was like, it looks like they're just describing an aristocratic family. They're not mentioning any broader kin group. There doesn't look like there's this bigger kin group that has somebody they acknowledge as the head of the kin group that they follow. There's not a bunch of different branches of it. There's nothing that we can see them coming together based on either real or perceived kinship. Nothing that looks like a clan, but in that process, I had to try to like, well, what is a clan? And I was, that's those things I just mentioned is kind of how I boiled it down. There's, it's bigger than just a guy and his family. They, they've got a head. This big group has a head who not only they acknowledge as a, as a head, but he sees himself as their leader. And you can see them coming together for some cooperative effort based on that kinship. Um, you, unfortunately, that's usually warfare. <laughs> it's usually violence. Is I think maybe the most visible in the historical record. What what would you what would you add to that to help us understand? Like as we're looking, like was this group really a clan, or are we just talking about an aristocratic family? All right. Before I turn you over to the answer to that question that I just asked, I'm going to put a little bit of a word in here for my sponsor, USA Kilts. Ladies and gentlemen, they make some mighty fine kilts. Very high quality. They're super passionate about what they do. Their customer service is right up there with the quality of their products. I think you can have a great experience if that's where you choose to go to purchase anything that helps you express your enthusiasm for your connection to Scotland, whatever that connection is, whether it's ancestry or whether it's just interest. So go over to usakilts.com for some high-quality products, some awesome customer service, free shipping in the U.S., or go over and check out their YouTube channel at USA Kilts and Celtic Traditions. I think you're going to like that too. Tons of cool content on there. They've got a little bit of everything. The core of it is things that help you wear kilts better, how, what do you wear with them, how do you wear it, what can you wear, all these different things. 
And um, also they get some history and culture mixed in with that too. So, And I think they're really good at anticipating questions that people would have about wearing a kilt or anything else that has to do with Scottish attire. So head on over to their YouTube channel, or if you actually want to go buy something, go to usakilts.com. And now I'm going to let you hear how Allie han- handles that question I just asked her. Yeah, and, and that's where it does, it is really blurry. I mean, if you look at how the elite of clan societies, so Highland chiefs and, and their families operate, it's very similar to lowland nobility, you know. Um, it's, it's complicated then after, in the 19th century, when the highlands become romanticised and suddenly everybody wants to wear tartan as if clans had always worn tartan and everybody wants to be a clan. Um, so, but you're right about that cooperation. And I think that's what boils down to is, and I think what I've tried to argue is that for me at the heart of clanship is this reciprocal relationship. Um, I, I think too often we present it as a hierarchical relationship that the chief is at the top and he is the guy that calls all the shots. And to some extent he is, but that's based on the reciprocal understanding that, that yes, um, he can expect loyalty and obedience and faithful service from his clan, but he has to protect, provide, and administer justice for his people. And if you don't do that, you are rem- you can be removed. And there have been instances where, where clan chiefs are removed. Um, so to me, it's not an easy job being a clan chief. Okay, you have a lot of complex things going on, not just within your own clan. So you hold the land that your clan live on and you work it together, you farm it together. Um, and in times of harvest, failure or dearth, it's then your responsibility to provide when, you know, most of the time you are redistributing resources around your clan. But if there's a harvest failure, if there's a famine, and that was often the case in the 16th, 17th century, then what do you do? Because that's your responsibility. In times of warfare, you have to protect your land from attack. Um, when one of your clan members has been attacked, then you have to provide justice. That's a There's a lot going on there. You're not just sorting out marriages for people or, you know, trading with somebody, which you're, you're also doing. You're forming external alliances to, to create a network of, of allies to protect your land from other people. It's it's an ongoing thing and it's constantly evolving. This sense that clans are just stuck in one place for centuries. Yeah. And they're constantly growing, growing and also contracting at times because, you know, clans rise and fall like other lone families. But And so it is that, that cooperation that as a clan chief, you're, you're responsible for that. Um, and that's a hard gig. And that's what I think ties back to what you said about the, the reputation for violence. Th- th- there is, okay. Um, there is a militaristic aspect to clan society, but I think too often on the part of the crown is a misunderstanding where some of that violence comes from. And it comes from economic need. Because if you're a clan chief and you your cattle have been stolen or there's been a harvest failure, you don't have any grain, you don't have the cash to go to the lowlands to buy more and not enough. So the only way you can recoup your loss is to take it from somebody else. So then you start a cycle of tit for tat, raiding, stealing, because that's the way you survive. And that's, that's, and so that's that association of, well, the Highlanders, they just take each other's cattle and they're always fighting. To me, a lot of the time, that's not their natural status quo. That's not what they want because warfare leads to destruction of land and land is your basic economic resource. Yeah. Yeah. No, so that... yeah, it's, uh, it's, not, it's not an easy gig, I think, being a clan chief. <laughs> that's a really, I think a really, uh, that's something that, how hard it would be to be a clan chief. I think that's not something I've given a lot of attention to. 
but you you do in kinship and clientage really outline that very well i think with um the the different things that he was responsible for and they would allow him to lead the clan in as much as he was good at that and there were examples of people where the clan found somebody else who was better at it <laughs> Um, with that, with that ex ex established as you know, here's what a clan looks like, and it's it's messy because there's very similar, very strong similarities with things in the Highlands and Lowlands. And you and you mentioned the Gordons earlier because they had something that looked, even though, and I understand that like at the time they may have been like, no, that's that's those guys, but their feud with the Forbes that looked a lot like a clan feud and the two sides look a lot like clans where you have a head you have branches some of them close some of them more distantly related but all acknowledging one person as the chief and they're just rallying everybody i know that not every not every member of their force was related to them but the core of it was built on kinship and they fought each other and maybe they at, at some point in that i don't know if it was a the Marian Civil War or or some other bigger political event that was going on, but sure looked like a clan feud. So yeah. yeah. No, no, I, I totally agree. I think sometimes I, I got really fascinated by the Gordons of Huntley and the Campbells of Argyle. I think often operates very similar in terms of the organization of the family, clan, however you want to look at, you know, that they are cadet branches, the cohesion they maintain between those cadet branches. At times, you know, when the chief or lord or earl is called away, someone else is there to delegate, you see them operating on a very similar level. And yet, you know, the Gordons would have hated being labeled a clan. And yet the Campbells absolutely understood their, their and, and, you know, really prided themselves on their place within Gallic society and Gallic culture. I, I think that because of centuries of maybe maybe some McDonald propaganda, that the camels are looked like as like, oh, you guys are about lowland. You guys are about most 70% lowland anyway. Like you're, you're barely, and the more I read about them, I've read Stephen Boardman's work on them. They were, and, and they're, I, I think they get hate because they were good at operating in both spheres and they succeeded. Not that they, they did some things that if I was a neighboring clan, I wouldn't have been a big fan of, like if I was a lament, <laughs> but, uh, but, um, yeah, like I think you pointed it out there. They were a, a pretty like West Highland. Yeah, and the Campbells are ahead of the game before anybody else. You know, yeah. they're they're making sure that everything's written down and documented so yeah. that they know exactly what land they have. And if anybody tries to take it from them, you know, they right. they have they have that legal claim. Not that that always works, but the Campbells are powerful enough to enforce a legal claim. Um, so they're way ahead of, of other clans um, and they adapt. And yeah, they do. They straddle that. They operate really well in both worlds. Jane um, Dawson's work on the Fifth Earl as well. She, you know, she says this is somebody who is very much at home in the Highlands and the West Highlands and able to operate there, but also very much at home at court and able to operate on a national level. Um, and you see that really with the, the fifth and sixth earls, I think, of Huntley. You know, they will operate in their locality. I don't think they really like coming to court, the Huntleys, actually, much like Argyle. They'll come and they'll do it if they need to, but they would much rather be left alone in their own territory because that's theirs. Um, and and so it's very similar. But the, yeah, the Campbells have suffered. I think the 17th century has a lot to answer for Campbells and, you know, 
Covenanters versus the Royalists, all of that. And again, that gets projected back as, yeah. So yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, you'd also mentioned, I think this is an interesting point. You brought up the statutes of Iona and I know, I know you've written on that as well. Um, now I had a question about that and I think it was a question I was watching Bruce Fumi who runs a, a pretty good, um, YouTube channel, or it's mostly just storytelling, but he dips into, and he and I have communicated a little bit back and forth, but he was interviewing you, Ali, can you help me with his name? Because he, he, I've never heard it. Like that. So that's the thing is on my end, I've read a lot of these Gallic place names, personal names, and I don't hear some of them. Okay. In English, we would call him Angus McKenzie. Oh, he actually, will you say it for, for us so we can hear it? It's Ernest McCoy. I, I, I'm not sure I can get the, the surname correct exactly. It's Ernest McCoynich. Okay. That was yeah. Ernest. He's a good friend of mine and we worked, we have worked very closely together for a lot of time. Yeah. Oh, thank you for that. And, and he was, he, so Bruce was interviewing him and Statues of Iona came up and I, it reminded me of some of the things you've written about. There were, I mean, there were a lot of clans who never were a part of that. Yes. And that's Ernest's point. And he still has to write on this. And I keep encouraging him to do it because a lot of the clans who do are, so I, Ernest and I worked together on a project. Um, he looked at the Northern Isles because Lewis is really the focus for him. I've looked at the Southern Isles and most of the clan chiefs that are part of that are Southern Isles. If you, you know, McLeods of Lewis are, are not involved in that. And, and his argument is it doesn't apply to everybody and it doesn't. They, they managed to arrest a number of the leading Highland and Hebridean chiefs, but not all of them. Interesting. So some of them sign up, others don't. You know? That's uh, that's that's good good because because it's presented and sometimes that distinction isn't made when we're talking about the statutes of Iona. They signed this, and so this is what all the clan chiefs had to succumb to. But there, if you look at all the actual clan chiefs that existed at the time, a very small percentage signed that. It's about what twelve of them. Yeah, it wasn't the list isn't very long. I'm guilty of that as well, and not you know making it very clear that not all of them sign up for it. Um, and actually, they are in prison. You know, they are warned yeah. when this is negotiated. So, you know, it's one of those, you know, I always say to people, never make a decision where somebody's got a gun pointing at your head. I mean, these guys didn't have a choice. So, of course, they're going to sign up to it. But the, the extent to which, yeah, you know, it's another yeah. one of them negotiating with the Crown. Um, but I think why the statutes worked is because it, it upheld the position of the elite and it tried to actually, it, it genuinely tried to uphold their position um, at the same time as alleviating or at least diminishing some aspects of clan society that the crown thought were, were problematic, but it upheld their status as the elite, but not everyone signed up for it. And, you know, they did have to reinforce them and much more forcefully. Seven years later. So. I appreciate that, Ali, that clarifying that for us. Thus concludes the first portion of my conversation with Ali Cathcart. I hope you enjoyed that part as much as I did, and I hope you enjoyed it so much that you'll stick around and check out the next episode. That's part one of two that I'm going to publish. That's I'm breaking this conversation into two segments. So I, I hope you enjoyed that. Um, if you did, go, leave some of your comments or your questions. I'm going to post this on 
my Facebook group. And so you can, down in the comments below, you can post it there. Another great way, if you just want to reach out to me individually, is at my email for this podcast, which is thescottishclans at gmail.com. If you have any follow-on questions or insights or anything else that deals with that conversation and you want to continue to the discussion, which is largely what this podcast is for, is for generating discussion and, and learning. And so I'm so grateful for Allie to, to be on here with us. So stay tuned to the next episode. And if you have any other things that you want to get involved with, we our, our Facebook group, the Scottish Clans, same as the the podcast, go on there. And we've got a ton of good conversations going on there with people who really know a lot of stuff about this or are asking really good questions and both are valuable. So go on there for the discussion. Another place you can go if you want some free content, some free resources, is you can go to scottish-clans.com. I have, you can scroll through some of the different places you can, things I've posted on that. I have one part of that that is all about resources. I've got uh, free downloads in PDF format. Um, so go there. It just, it, all it costs you is your, your email address. It asks for when you go down to download the free PDF. So go check that out. There's lots of cool stuff on there. And until next time, Martian Leib and Drastas.